we pivoted again and again and again and again. I mean, Pretty Quick is the story of relentless pursuit of a vision across our whole team to create the solution that we all had in our minds. But the truth is, we were met with headwind after headwind after headwind. But I thought about all of these women out there who wanted to get a service done, but didn't have an easy way to access that service. And I thought about the inefficiency in this giant, giant, giant $70 billion industry. And I was haunted by the promise of finding out a better way and building a way that would actually work. Hello, and welcome to the Polsky Center's Where Are They Now podcast. I'm Colin Keeley, and we catch up with founders from Chicago Boost New Venture Challenge on this show. Join us as we dive into their entrepreneurial journeys and get a look at the stories and struggles behind their success. This week, we have Coco Mears interviewed by Star Marcello. Coco is currently the CEO and co-founder of Equilibria, which designs CBD products specifically tailored to women. Before that, Coco was the CEO and co-founder of Pretty Quick, an on-demand salon scheduling app that was acquired by Groupon in 2015. Star Marcello is the deputy dean for MBA programs at Chicago Booth. Before the dean's office, Star was the executive director of the Polsky Center. Without further ado, here's Coco Mears and Star Marcello. Okay. Hi, Star. <laughs> Hi, Coco. Hi. All right. Thank you for doing this. I'm um, so excited to talk to you and go back on the journey of your entrepreneurial career and all the wonderful things you've learned along the way. Let's just start, Coco, by going really back to the beginning. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? How did you get exposed to entrepreneurship? Where does it all begin? Well, really, it all begins in the office of one star Marcello, but I'll I'll back up just a little bit to provide some context before that, before that fateful meeting. But that's not a joke. I am coming back to that day in your office way before I was even a full-time student at Booth and with a previous New Venture Challenge company that I'd had the great good fortune to work with. But my whole career has been about helping women look and feel their best. It's really... It's a mission and a passion that I'm drawn to. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and after college, moved to New York City, where I worked for L'Oreal in their consumer products division on the Maybelline brand, starting out in New York. And then I moved to Paris, where I worked in global innovation on the Garnier Fructis brand. So always in that consumer division, but working on really different categories uh, in health, beauty, and wellness. And... When I moved back to the States, I fell in love with entrepreneurship. This was in 2009. So before I had started at Booth, and I was lucky enough to uh, work for a... um, I I did a little stint in venture capital. This was 2009. It was early. The iPhone was only two years old. But uh, Nick Rosa with Sandbox Industries was kind enough to bring me on and say, hey, Coco, you're a marketer. Surely you can go and you can help these portfolio companies figure out, go to market, figure out product market fit, figuring out their, 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 their marketing plans. I've got these founders who are you know, developing some really interesting technologies, but they're not thinking enough about market, model, distribution, sales, marketing. So I said, sure. I'll see how I can help. 
And I was completely blown away by the just the passion and the risk-taking and the creativity of those founders that I got to work with every single day. That was my first exposure to startups. And so I said right then and there in the fall of 2009 that I wanted to go to Booth for business school and that I wanted to start a company while I was there, which meant my decision to go to Booth was really made because of the New Venture Challenge and all of the great companies that I had seen coming out of it. Uh, this was when Brian Johnson, who became an investor and in, in pretty quick, was, was building Braintree. This was when Matt was just having explosive success with Grubhub. So there was enough social proof in the program that I felt it warranted all of that excitement and attention and, and was literally the number one reason that I wanted to go to Booth. So... I want to go back just a little bit because you're talking about exposure to startups through working in venture, doing a stint with Nick Rosa and helping companies find product market fit and do market sizing and using your brand management experience. Were you a business major undergrad? How did you get exposure and knowledge to all of these really critical pieces of business? that relate to getting to know your customer? That was why Booth was such a critical next step for me. I was not a business major undergrad. I was an English major and I had a certificate or a minor in French, which prepared me for communicating. It prepared me for structuring ideas and thoughts. It prepared me for you know connecting with that with that consumer but but very little else and you know i credit l'oreal l'oreal had an exceptional i was i i participated in a general management rotational training program there that exposed you know otherwise non business brains and talent to that whole life cycle of general management from conception of an idea all the way through and all of the cross functional pieces that that you know that would be required to make it successful in market that was really that is the role of a CPG brand manager it's it's really an exercise in general management which when you think about it and put on that startup ceo hat that's what you're doing you're you're making sure that in this case not your product line but your company can be successful on time, on brand, on budget. So no, I was not a business major undergrad. Yes, I had been lucky to have this general management rotational training and P&L ownership experience and be that hub of the wheel for some really big billion-dollar multinational brands. But I, I didn't want to question my own financials. I wanted to be able to put together that business model for my own entrepreneurial pursuits from soup to nuts. I might not be the CFO, but as the CEO, I wanted to understand all of the cross-functional work streams that it would take for us to be successful. So for me, that was why Booth was so important and why this curriculum in entrepreneurial leadership from the beginning all the way, all the way through to exit was imperative. So let's go back to the 2009 area. So you are leaving your brand management career with L'Oreal. You are deciding to go to business school at Booth with the explicit purpose of starting a company. Now, of course, 
in order to start a company, you have to have an idea for what you want to build. Where did your idea come from for Pretty Quick, the company that you would start and take through the New Venture Challenge? So as I mentioned, throughout my career, I have been drawn to this mission of helping women look and feel their best. And I lived that through you know, bringing products to market for them at the L'Oreal level. But when I fell in love with entrepreneurship and decided that I would dedicate the next phase of my career, what will probably now be all of my career, I don't think you can dive in and, and, and climb back out. I'm in. But you know, to entrepreneurship, I, I just began racking my brain about consumer problems that that I had that I had experienced personally, and I kept coming back to this time when I was in. I haven't thought about the story in so long now, but I was in an airport and I was traveling internationally, and I had a flight delay, and it was the first time in a long time where I had this found time and. I wish that I had not been stuck in an airport because I said, man, if I were, were out and about in Paris or New York where I was heading at that time, I would use this time to book an eyebrow wax. And I remember pitching this in the New Venture Challenge and staring at, you know, at, at a bunch of judges who I'm not sure could empathize. Hopefully the the you know we're, we're all doing our part to level the playing field and increase, increase uh, at least gender diversity in um, on the venture side. But that was the moment. That was the pain point. The salon and spa services space was a $70 billion category that didn't have a marketplace. Travel had a marketplace. Dining had a marketplace. Transportation have has many, many marketplaces. But beauty didn't. Now I know why, because it's extremely fragmented and, and nearly impossible to connect supply and demand in the space. But the consumer pain point was real enough for me that when you wanted to book an appointment, it was next to impossible to know who was available, who was recommended, and who was close by, and with that information, seamlessly book an appointment. So that was the that was the very beginning of a truly formative educational journey, which was my first startup. I want to come back to your experience pitching a company like Pretty Quick targeted largely to a female market to investors who are by and large male investors who you said might not empathize with the problem statement that you felt and articulated. With the emergency, <laughs> the, the emergency eyebrow and bikini wax booking. I, I just, you know, I, I didn't get, I didn't get a lot of confirmatory nods at the time, you know? Well, I went back and looked at our judging lineup, our pool of judges for when you pitched in, this was now 2011 for pretty quick in the new venture challenge. It was 84% male. And you're right. It has changed over the years, but it has been very difficult for female founders to pitch businesses targeted at the female market when those that they are pitching to may not understand the problem or it may not resonate. And I'd love to hear any thoughts that you want to share about how you thought about that when you were giving your pitch or advice you would give to other female founders who might find themselves in a similar situation. I also, by the way, looked up just the recent stats from the year 2020 in terms of how much VC funding went to female founders still only at 2.2% of all venture funding. 
I was going to say three. I thought we'd made a little more progress than 2.2. Wow. Let's go back to the pretty quick pitch. And then again, for me, that experience has informed some of the decisions that I have made post-exit and up until this point, which I'm really proud of. And I consider it my responsibility to do what I can to help increase gender diversity on the financial side as well. So, you know, I, I just I can't even describe the amount of times where I would I would pitch the the pain point and the consumer pain point. And, you know, those early stage investors, they have to identify with the problem in the market. It's more alchemy at the early stages. You don't have, you know, all of the unit economics there to look like. You don't have all of the 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 financials there to de-risk your thesis. So it is a lot of understanding and trusting that as an early stage investor partner, you can get in there and you can help. And what I heard when I was pitching pretty quick was, let me take this, I'm going to run it by my wife, and then I'll come back and I'll let you know what she thinks about her pain point. So it was it was really, really challenging. There were other challenges. I was expecting my first child when, when we were raising. And so just so much. I, I learned to navigate through this and to just be very proactive and forthcoming about my childcare plans and my intention to stay with the business and see it through to a successful exit. But I, I learned I had to have other advocates and allies come to me privately and tell me that investors were concerned and that they didn't, they needed to hear me say that I had a plan. I thought that was implicit. I'm the CEO of a company. It is my fiduciary responsibility to get this all the way through to a successful exit for all shareholders. But apparently I needed to be more outspoken about that. So that's advice that I would have for women raising. Yeah. Thank you. Well, but then, so we got there we got some amazing investors around us. There were, you know, lots and lots of phases of learning and progress, and, and we can talk about those. But ultimately, after we exited pretty quick, I began investing in women and in consumer companies. So in markets and founders and models that I felt where, you know, where, where I felt I could help. Um, so I do have an angel platform called Rebel Collective. I have at this point, just over 10 angel investments in that vehicle. And I'm really proud to be able to not just try to help, but to write a check um, myself. And there's there's plenty of other things, but I think it's just critical that we that we all, you know, take action here and write checks where we can. Thank you. So let's go back to building pretty quick. You mentioned um, wanting to support women. That's a key theme in your entire career, supporting women and consumer products. One of the other things I will note about you is that you have worked with co-founders, largely other women who've helped you launch this company, all the, both of the companies, and we'll get to your second company soon. Pretty quick, how did you find your co-founder? Shrina, my co-founder at Pretty Quick, was a friend at business school. And I am, you know, just so lucky to have met Trina and to have gone on this journey with her. And again, I credit Booth and the New Venture Challenge for putting us together. Trina and I knew one another socially, but it was in Waverly's Building the New Venture class when we were putting together a team just before we would have um, applied to NVC. And she 
was listening, she was observing, and you know, she was just sort of, I could tell there was a spark in her eye and she was interested, um, thankfully. So Shrina has been, was with the team since the very beginning in building the new venture. We went on, you know, lots, we had lots of, of phases and, and, and evolution together as co-founders from the beginning from, you know, I think there's just this, like, we call it now at Equilibria, the can't not do moment where you just, you're so taken by a problem and the impact that you could drive if you could help solve it, that you just kind of are obsessed, right? There's just this founder obsession that just courses through through you. And, and I had that founder obsession from the very beginning. And again, it was it drove my decision to go to Booth and it drove my passion for the NVC process and, and all of the curriculum you know, that I participated in at Booth. So Shrina came at it from a really different place. And I think ultimately, you know, my passion and just kind of drive to get us to the finish line and Shrina's objectivity and her more measured approach were a really great pair and a really great complement. So, you know, Shrina took some time away from the business, you know, into that second year, that second year of business school. And then and it was only after she had graduated, I had not yet, I was, I had decelerated to the part-time program, but that she came back and joined the team again, full-time. And I think again, that, you know, I credit Waverly for putting us together, but now I look at the career that she's made in consumer product. She's just left shop runner, Sam Yegan's shop runner and gone on to just some really amazing new product adventures one after another. And, um, you know, pretty quick gave her that start and pretty quick, certainly our mobile experience and our product operations were what defined us and set us apart and prepared us for our exit. And, uh, and we wouldn't have gotten there without Shrina. So I love, I love that Booth brought us together. So you are so passionate about what Pretty Quick is setting out to do, creating a marketplace for salons and spas, creating seamless booking as it happens in other industries, but applying it to the beauty space. You've got a strong co-founder with complementary skills. You've built a great business plan through the New Venture Challenge. How did you actually build your first version of the product? At Booth now, we actually teach application development and Python and all kinds of technical skills that some of our entrepreneurs use in order to get an MVP up and running. That didn't exist when you were here. <laughs> yeah, so we we had we only had wireframes going through the new venture challenge and so our first real product development happened that summer where we you know we were using proceeds from the NVC and from some other you know very early uh kind of friends and family funding to build that first version of the product and i would say this is where this was the first point and again there were many 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 hard moments in the building of Pretty Quick post NBC, this was one of them. That summer, we hired a dev shop, not a CTO, not a, not a partner, but an, a contracted agency to build the first version of Pretty Quick. When you are matching supply and demand, 
in a services marketplace, logic tells you that you need to own supply in order to serve it up to the demand side. And so the first version of that product that we contracted was a better mousetrap. It was a B2B scheduling platform that would allow salons and spas to manage their calendar online, away from pen and paper or away from some of these anachronistic old school systems that were built. You know, I joke that they were built on MS-DOS, but they were built a long time ago. So that's what we built that summer. And I've told the story before, but Star, do you remember how many customers used that first version of the product that we built? Three. So we had so much tailwind and conviction in the ultimate marketplace coming out of the NVC, but our first at-bat failed. And it was really, really, really hard. We'd spent all of our money the the heart and soul and kind of emotional bandwidth of the team was gone. One of our founding partners um, left, exited the business at that time after that first failure to achieve adoption by our beta customers. And why did we fail? We failed because we built the wrong thing. Why did we build the wrong thing? Because we weren't listening to our customers. And because our talent strategy was wrong. We went out and hired a big fancy agency who we paid a fee, a flat fee to build to build a static thing rather than recruiting an exceptional technical co-founder who could iterate with us and MVP style learn as we go. What we should have done was spent much more time on customer development. And if we had really listened to what our, our salon and spa customers were telling us, They didn't tell us that they needed a better scheduling system. They didn't tell us that they needed a better mousetrap. Rather, they told us they needed butts and seats. We thought that we needed a scheduling system to seamlessly deliver them butts and seats, but we didn't. And so, you know, like like with many startups, the first minute we knew that pretty quick was sort of on to its next phase and that this next phase really did have more commercial promise and more chance a better chance of success was when we hired a CTO and built a very lean software agnostic demand generation tool versus a heavy high switching cost B2B calendaring tool. So I want to dig into this just a little bit more. You've spent your resources on this development shop. Sounds expensive. You've built the first iteration of Pretty Quick. You're not getting the adoption from customers that you were expecting. How did you know when it was time to pivot? How did you know when this experiment has failed, this version is not going to go forward and we need to do something different? We had a clear set of success KPIs against which we were measuring ourselves and we failed the checklist. We just failed the checklist. Without that early adoption, this is what's so hard about marketplaces. And even when we solved this version of the problem, which is what we're we're talking about product market fit, and we just 
colossally failed. I mean, everything about what we built was wrong. It wasn't what our customers needed. We didn't earn adoption, which meant all of our engagement KPIs were just way, way, way off. And if they were way, way, way off on the supply side, then we didn't even have the supply to serve up to the demand side. So we couldn't even get to the step where we were testing customer acquisition and then take rate and then unit economics. And it just wasn't working. I mean, it was that first time there, there were other moments where um, where we, I mean, we pivoted again and again and again and again. I mean, pretty quick is the story of relentless pursuit of a vision across our whole team to create the solution that we all had in our minds. But the truth is we were met with headwind after headwind after headwind. And this was just the first headwind. And it honestly was really obvious, Star. It was obvious that we had to do something different or pack up and go home. And we actually did pack up and go home. Right after that first summer, Shrina went to go pursue other paths at Booth. And I went to go work for a venture capital firm that summer in Paris. And it should have been a dream job. I'm a Francophile. I love Paris. I was back there working again. I was working for a consumer fund, Highland Capital. But it was a distraction for me. Every single morning, I woke up and and went to my office in, in Paris, and I thought about pretty quick. And I thought about the $70 billion industry that didn't have a market place. I thought about all of these women out there who wanted to get a service done, but didn't have a way to an easy way to access that service. And I thought about the inefficiency in this giant, giant, giant $70 billion industry. And I was haunted by the promise of finding out a better way and building a way that would actually work. And I was inspired. It was, it was, it was, so it was coming back to it and kind of getting the band back together one more time because of this obsession that I had And again, booth to the rescue because I sat down with Matt Maloney and Matt told me all about, you know, the first kind of once they'd gotten past just posting the the restaurant menus and they had actually generated demand already, but how were they going to connect supply and demand? And that first version of breaking through, you know, by sending a fax and leaning into the existing customer behavior of those quick serve restaurants, putting the fax up on the line and that old school piece of paper actually working really well. And so, you know, their their system powering an anachronistic technology as simple as the facts led us to think about, well, could a demand and appointment booking on our side power something as anachronistic as the phone? Because as old school as the phone is, it's what salon and spa front desk staff are doing day in and day out. And so that initiated that inspiration from the Booth Network initiated kind of the phase two of Pretty Quick, which set us on our way for real, through which we found real product market fit, which was what if an appointment booking could set off a suite of real-time alerts through the phone, through hardware that lights up in the salon, through SMS, you know, really whatever communication channel the salon or spa needs let's just bring them demand. And finally, we were able to do that in take two. So you're obsessed with this market opportunity. Having another job in VC doesn't dissuade you from coming back, getting the band back together, taking another pass at pretty quick. Was it difficult to convince the team to come back together and dive back into pretty quick 
with a new model? It was really difficult. And in many cases, it was a different team. Uh, I had to earn Sharina's trust again, and she needed to see the traction there herself. She needed to see that the engagement metrics were working and that finally we had created a solution that would allow us to bypass this supply side aggregation issue because we didn't need the supply side. We could just, you know, in real time, check for availability. And and we got better and better and better and better at that through all sorts of algorithmic and, you know, AI predictive capabilities. We were really creating availability that that might, you know, we we didn't necessarily know, but that it was, um, you know, high confidence enough that we could go ahead and book it. So it was really difficult to get the team back together, but also sometimes you just need to start over with different teams. So you're making positive progress learning from earlier mistakes. Was there a moment that stood out as you are making this progress that stood out to you as we might be on the path or perhaps have achieved product market fit? Every single day, we would stare at our dashboard just all day in, day out. We're just... we're. Again, we're just obsessed with the results of all of this hard work. Again, marketplaces are so challenging. You've got to get supply right. We had to to be able to serve up. It doesn't sound that 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 hard, right? To be able to just book an appointment, but but to have real network effect and create a marketplace that demand would even be interested in, we had to first sell into supply. Well, what does that mean? That means going around and getting every single nail salon and every single hair salon above a certain quality threshold and blowout bar and wax studio, not in a neighborhood, but in four blocks in a neighborhood because density is so important in local. And if you don't have the right salons and spas on board, you might as well not even try to connect supply and demand or pay for demand. So we'd work so hard to sell in to hyper-local, dense, high-quality supply who was contracted with us, who understood how to use our technology. That means all of their team was trained on our demand alert system, one. Two, we'd work so hard to get the word out. We all know how hard customer acquisition is. Every single team thinks customer acquisition, if you know, if you build it, they will come. It, that, it never works out that way. It's always more expensive to acquire a customer than you think. Um, so we finally figured out how to aggregate supply, how to get paid from supply, and then how to market in a real-time way to demand and get women like Star, like Coco, like Shrina, aware of Pretty Quick, having downloaded the app, opening it up and thinking of us when they were in that moment of need. And then was the moment that the product had to take to, had to take over. And so we would look every single, you know, we would stare at the dashboard to see, okay, what requests were coming in? Was the salon going to respond on their own? Was the product working? And, you know, how could we close that gap basically? So it was just staring at those metrics every single day and seeing where the problems were. And finally... We were seeing numbers that were really, really exciting. We were seeing that when customers were booking the salons on their own without us needing to step in, we're responding. And then they started to respond more quickly. And then it felt like open table because it was instant. 
because those salons trusted that this was real demand, understood how it worked, and the, and the customers, you know, had a really great experience. So once the customer experience was, you know, delightful, there was no wait time, and it was always a confirmed, you know, accurate appointment. Then we could just focus on on increasing throughput and getting more and more people through the funnel. But those first moments of is this thing going to work? were just the most satisfying. And that was the massive, massive hurdle to jump over given how fragmented the salon and spa industry is. I am interested before we get to the momentous time when Pretty Quick is acquired by another Chicago big name company that everyone will know. You mentioned before there were many challenges Aside from the first iteration failing, having to rebuild your team, taking time away, coming back, figuring out what would delight your customer, are there other challenges or some other significant event that you had to overcome in the process of getting pretty quick to the point of its acquisition? I'd offer two more. And the second one will lead naturally into the acquisition and the strategy behind it. But the first one kind of once we had product market fit, once we had the right team all motivated around this vision, the the next hardest lesson for all of us to learn and me most especially, I take responsibility for not being focused enough is just how important it is to really, really trim down in some cases, even maybe sacrifice some of that grand vision and focus, focus, focus. Here I was, I had this vision in my mind of a truly open table for the industry, for the entire industry. But there's sub-industries within the industry. There's sub-industries within the sub-industries within the industry. There's Nail nail salon within within you know um, these loyalty driven categories like blowouts and nails and kind of the commodity services and then there's like much more loyalty driven services like cut and color you know there's there's other you know much more high consideration categories as well when we consider med spa and some of the um, kind of next gen facials and things like that so you know on the product side, I didn't focus us soon enough. I could have done a better job at not boiling the ocean and being all things for all people, but really honing in on that segment of the salon and spa market that was most ripe for a software agnostic booking tool. Turns out that was really nail salons and other commodity-driven services like blowouts, um, in some cases, waxes, I could have gotten us to that point sooner. Well, Coco, why do you think that is? Why do you think it was hard for you to recognize that benefit of focusing and getting there sooner? I think I was in love with the vision. And I think as a first-time founder, the vision slowing down to speed up, it felt like I was departing from the vision. And pretty quick was more than just nails. How could it possibly be just nails? And I'm only speaking in this instance about the category 
of services. There's also just the platform, you know, area of focus as well. We had a web product. We were live on desktop and we had a responsive web product, of course, for mobile, but then we also had an iOS app. And it was just to be really successful. We also had an Android app to be really successful on four platforms all at once before your model is really working and and certainly pre-scale. That was also too much. Again, think about all that we were trying to do. Marketplaces are so hard. Founders really need to be honest with themselves about the capacity that they have and the limited resources that they have. And, you know, where can they start small, prove something small, and then add on over time? And realizing that that's not failure, that's not giving up on where you're going. It's just acknowledging that, you know, that that you're going to get there sequentially and not do it all at once. Tell me about the second challenge. The second challenge was model and also being honest with yourselves as founders and as builders and as creators about whether or not the business model is working. There were some really tough times when Shrina and I looked at each other and we said, this isn't working. As we've talked about, I feel like I'm a broken record, but marketplaces are really hard. You've got to sell into the right supply, not just some of it, but most of it, not just in one neighborhood, but in a couple blocks. And then again and again, rinse and repeat. Then you've got to have the perfect product in the middle to connect supply and demand. Then you've got to go and you've got to acquire demand. And turns out our customer acquisition costed pretty quick was $40. And our AOV was also about $40. And we had a 20% margin. So we were making eight bucks a pop. So to break even on that customer acquisition cost, just really simple unit economics, we had to bring them back five times. It's so... Name the things that you do in your consumer life five times. If you don't have the best, most addictive, totally like pain pill for that issue that you had, delightful, incredible experience the first time, why would you go back second? And why would you go back a third time? And like, you're definitely not going to go back five times. So as we got more and more focused on delivering a truly delightful, best-in-class consumer mobile experience on iOS only, and only in commodity categories, very, very focused. Once we started to do that, we started to see that we were earning frequency and they weren't coming back one and done, thank God. And they weren't coming back just two and three, but we were earning our way into these profitable cohorts who were coming back, you know, monthly and and our lifetime value was, was, was really exciting. But it was only after, you know, significant cost of sales, significant customer acquisition cost. So the, the cohorts started to work and they did work. And, and then we started to expand. We expanded to six cities nationwide. And, and, and the model did ultimately work. But it just took years and years and years of blood, sweat, tears, and very little sleep and heart and soul poured in from not just me, but an incredible, incredible early team that we had to get us to the point where those cohorts were working. 
And they were working at the unit economic profitable level, not necessarily at the full, you know, PL level. It's not like we had EBITDA. So I just urge founders to really be honest with themselves and ask themselves, you know, is this working? And is it, is it too hard? And, you know, are there ways that you can make it easier faster? Like I should have in focusing more myopically sooner. So in 2015, you get acquired, pretty quick gets acquired by Groupon. Tell us about that. How did that happen? We were out raising because our cohorts were working. We had unit economic profitability. We had figured out a really smart way to circumvent that cost of sales that I was talking about. We were publishing salons and spas and sending them business before we were actually contracted with them, which meant we were able to shorten our sales cycle and increase our local footprint literally overnight. I mean, it was really, really exciting. So we had figured out these fundamental marketplace dynamics that had held us back for years. And it was really, it was really great to finally be in the sweet spot and be growing and, and scaling. We did require follow-on funding in order to hit those next levels of growth. So while we were out there raising, Groupon Corp Dev came to talk. And at first, there just wasn't a fit. You know, we were pull, we were high quality, we were booking, they were push, they were discount, 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 they were, you know, voucher booking only. And so it was only after subsequent meetings with the team that I began to learn more about their focus and investment in the health, beauty, and wellness space. And what I learned was that Groupon had a billion dollar PL just in health, beauty, and wellness, just in this very specific space where we played. And they had 55,000 customers already. And they had something like 30,000 salons and spas already. And so at first I thought, this is not a match. But when I learned more about the corporate strategy behind you know, the, the, their vision for their own health, beauty, and wellness, to evolve it beyond just vouchers and just discounts, and to elevate it to convenience and booking, you know, then I started to think, wow, there really could be a fascinating um, and really accretive um, strategy here. So it began with just month-long conversations around brand strategy and product strategy that were very exciting to me. And ultimately, we were presented with term sheets on the investor investment side as well as um, as well as on the M and A side. And that was a hard choice to make. But ultimately, on the M&A side, it was a great outcome for everybody. And it felt like we were leapfrogging because we didn't have to go out there and again, acquire the salons and spas and again, acquire the users. We had them. All we had to do was leverage those assets smartly through a product and brand strategy that made sense. And essentially the the we could turn a billion dollar business into a 2 billion dollar business so you had two ex- 
exciting paths to take potentially. Raising more money from investors who wanted to back you, who gave you term sheets, or being acquired by Groupon. How did you make that hard decision? Were there advisors who were particularly helpful in thinking through the options and choosing the one that would really be better for you and for pretty quick? I've been really lucky to have incredible advisors and confidants along the way. And yes, I had you know, hours and hours and hours of conversation with a range of mentors and advisors when facing this exciting but scary choice. But at the end of the day, you know, honestly, everybody looks at a trade-off with their own perspective and bias. And I had many advisors say, this is working, Coco. It just started to work. Go for it. You can do it. You can take this all the way. Raise this money. Then the next round, then the next round, then the next round. Look at all these marketplaces that are getting traction. You can do it. And then I had others who had seen, you know, were a little more in the weeds and trenches with me, who saw just what I was seeing. And some of these like realities, these cold, hard realities that I'm sharing here today that were, that were just, that were tough, right? The, the cost of sales, the, the, the still as much as we had perfected, you know, the product and the, the user experience to the best of our ability, there were plenty of merchants in whom booking wasn't seamless. And that first experience, you know, after we'd worked so hard to get the salon and spa on board and, and, and acquire that customer, the first experience was, was not a good experience. The salon did not accurately capture the booking or something happened with payment or, you know, our predictive algorithms failed. So at the end of the day, you know, Shrina and I had to make the calculus on our own based on the data that we had. And what we knew about our chances of success, given the marketplace dynamics and all of the friction that existed there, as well as the imperative of lifetime value because of low margin. And so though we were so proud of all of the progress that we had made, and many of our competitors were out of business by this point, it felt like the right strategic move to us and just you know a total win to be able to take money off the table and go and build this billion dollar vision without having to acquire customers or users from scratch. It was a really fun first year post exit because we had worked very hard in the M&A process to ensure that pretty quick would be independent for the first year. And the Groupon executive team was very supportive of that. And they were listening and learning and watching these convenience-based use cases that they had a real vested interest in as well. You know, And so I really credit the executive team with that patience. It's not easy to turn a battleship. It's not easy um, in a publicly traded company to take a risk on new technologies and new models. And so it was... Um, it was a really exciting first year to be able to be entrepreneurial, but in a resource-rich environment. And 
Coco, what happens after that first year post-exit? Yeah. So there's, there's always a honeymoon, right? That was the honeymoon. Post first year, you know, we, we came there, we exited to Groupon because we believed that our technology and our brand could turn a category, a billion dollar category, but with declining frequency that we could turn it around because that declining frequency, if we were to achieve the frequency of pretty quick and generate that customer behavior at scale, I mean, we really are talking about billions of dollars of top line. Um, So it was a very, very, very exciting challenge and we were up for it. And that was the whole strategy of the deal. So we knew going in that, that it would be really hard, but that success looked like reinvigorating this billion dollar business with our technology and our brand. So, you know, we're one year, one year into it and the team is incredible. Groupon has put in amazing resources behind this initiative and you know we had real cross functional collaboration which is hard in a big matrixed company to get back to those cross functional org designs um, and pnl structures it wasn't easy and again there was a lot of leadership that was really supportive of the of the experiments that we were making so we had product we had sales we had marketing we had design we were all together trying to figure this out how are we going to put this technology on top of this giant monolithic tech stack and iterate in the way that we needed to so it was after that first year we were all really excited about the possibility of combining our technology and our brand and our customer promise and putting that on top of this monolithic tech stack. And we had a really awesome cross-functional team with tons of resources, all dedicated around this one mission. Um, And we all really believed in it. But it's just so hard. So after year one, you know, we learned the hard way that brand strategy and product strategy are really complex. And at the end of the day, you know, was Groupon ready to stand for something other than discounts? Discounts have really high margins associated with them. And they had built a really big multi-billion dollar publicly traded company with earnings to report to Wall Street. So, you know, cross-functional collaboration, revenue model, brand strategy, these are all really, really, really hard challenges around innovation and innovation at scale that ultimately we just, we couldn't move through. We couldn't move through in a way that made it a huge success, the success that we had all dreamed of it. And it was really, really tough. I mean, we did give it a great effort. Pretty Quick became Beauty Now. Beauty Now had a really great run in, I believe it was six markets nationwide, some incredibly talented sales professionals, you know, selling it into luxury salons and spas across the nation. Um, really awesome engineering and product efforts to integrate uh, the, the booking technology into some of these backends like Booker, like MindBody Online. Um, so we, we made a ton of progress, but a cross-functional bet like that, just it requires steadfast commitment 
from the highest level to really see it all the way through to completion. And at the end of the day, you know, was it cannibalistic? Sometimes innovation requires risk and true evolution. And that requires brand and product strategy that are a little more malleable than, than, than they were at the time. I wonder if you can think back to your frame of mind, how you felt at this point in your career. You're now working for Groupon full-time. Groupon's a huge company based here in Chicago. Did you know at that point that your entrepreneurial career was not over, that you would jump into startup life again at some point? Yes. Again, I credit the New Venture Challenge and my experience at Booth and the resulting four years of just truly formative foundational startup building and creativity with just this love that I have for it. It's really a it's a lifestyle choice. It's a frame of mind. For me, work and life are just totally integrated. And we we exited to Groupon to return value to shareholders and continue building. But once that building was over, you know, I needed to get on to the next chapter of building. So tell us what that was. When you're ready to leave Groupon, what do you do next? I left Groupon in February of 2018. And so at that point, from you know, the NVC in 2011 to finally leaving the acquired company in 2018, it had been seven years. Seven years of one market, one model, one team. I mean, it really was a very, very, very intense professional experience with so many cross-functional just life lessons. I, I, I'll just forever, ever, ever be grateful for them. But what follows that? I had no idea. All I knew was that I wanted to get back to my true love of building companies. For me, that is the ultimate act of creativity. It is so exciting every single day. And I knew I wanted more of that in my life. So my first step towards building was to officially form an angel vehicle of my own. And as I mentioned, I'm an active angel investor in women and in consumer companies. And I thought at first that I would serve as a CMO or CEO for hire additionally and launch sort of a studio model where in addition to equity and cash founders would 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 work with myself and my partner at the time and we would help build and construct you know the business alongside the founder to get it to that to that next level of of readiness for for follow-on funding and now looking back star what i can say about that model is that i was looking for my next startup because i love building companies from the ground up. And I wasn't ready to just be an investor. So I was looking for a hybrid approach of investing and advising. And it worked because 
a few months into that, into that flow of meeting with founders, not just to passively write a check, but to write a check and to help. I met my now co-founder, Remet. We've we've worked together in the past. Marcy was actually after that first product development agency, Marcy's firm was the second one that we brought out, brought on with whom we worked in a really iterative, awesome way. Female engineer, totally understood the problem space of salon and spa booking. So we, we brought product to, to market together before, but it was through Rebel that as an investor and as an operator, we were able to come together and concept uh, what I'm now working on, which is a premium CBD company for women called Equilibria. So you're going to start Equilibria with a co-founder who you've had a successful working relationship with in the past. What did you learn from Pretty Quick that you wanted to apply to Equilibria? What mistakes did you want to avoid? What did you do differently in those very early stages of starting a new venture? The story of Equilibria to date is informed in almost every way by the lessons that I learned through pretty quick. I know, you know, we hear this all the time in the startup community, but it really is true that we learn the most when when we mess up, when we make mistakes, when we fail, when it's not going well. And, you know, Pretty quick was a success, but it was a success built on the backs of years and years and years of failures. So with Equilibria, there was a clean slate. And the most important lesson that I applied from the very beginning was a very disciplined approach to unit economic thresholds that if we did not pass, we would not proceed with the business. I learned the hard way with Pretty Quick as we've talked about how incredibly hard it is to earn frequency and to earn lifetime value. And so, you know, I was looking at only at either recurring revenue models or at models that had gross profit profitability at the first transaction. And, you know, that obsession with unit economic health has served us very, very, very well at Equilibria. It's allowed us to scale very rapidly with very little paid in capital because we don't require outside funding. We seek investor partner relationships opportunistically because of the strategy and the counsel and you know the help with scaling and, and all the rest of it. But it's not, it's not a requirement. It's opportunistic. So that that's kind of the first thing is just that discipline around, around the model, which has been revolutionary for our team. It's allowed our team to live out our mission. Our mission is to restore balance to the lives of women, similar to the mission at Pretty Quick, still in that same vein. But we have the freedom to control our destiny. And um, right now we do that through personalized premium cannabis routines you know, and and we'll continue to serve her and 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 her needs to again earn her trust and, and make sure she's coming back to us again and again and again in the way that is best for her, not necessarily best for our investors. I'm curious just about you as the the CEO now for Equilibria and all that you've learned from 
your entrepreneurial journey to date, what kind of a leader are you? What does leadership mean to you at this point? With Pretty Quick, as we've talked about today, I really had such drive to get to that end goal. I was in my mind, I could clearly see the vision, the destination, which was, you know, enter analog, but call it open table for salon and spa booking. And I think that served us well at pretty quick, probably because of all of the the headwinds and the complexities and the nuances of dual-sided marketplaces that we've talked about today. So having that vision as the North Star, I, I do think was was essential. And you know, we all believed in it and we were all so passionate about it together. And it's what drove us through to ultimately the business working and then exiting. At Equilibria, I can be less prescriptive about where we're going because what we are doing is working now. And so it's really more about the journey and not the destination. It's about recruiting you know, best-in-class, subscription, direct-to-consumer, telehealth, cannabis talent who I can empower to you know, bring their experience to the table and entrust them to set strategy because we don't have to you know, push so hard all the time to get to this sort of phantom place that we might never get to. We're already there. It's already working. We're serving her. Um, we have product market fit. The unit economics are working. Um, we're scaling really, really quickly. 11X growth, 2020 over 2019. And so having sat in a leadership seat where I don't want to say it's easy now, but it is a lot easier. It is a lot easier because the market is ready and the model makes sense. And there's just less friction and there's less headwind. So it's going to be interesting to see where we go with this because there's no clear endpoint in mind. That's wonderful. I want to just bring us back before we end to the new venture challenge. I was struck in listening to you describe your journey at the different players who helped you along the way and the gratitude that you have for them people who were affiliated with the New Venture Challenge and who appeared at different points to help you with your pretty quick journey and perhaps now with Equilibria. You mentioned Matt Maloney, the founder of Grubhub, helping you understand marketplace businesses and sellers and connecting sellers and buyers. You mentioned Brian Johnson, who was one of your investors in Pretty Quick, the founder of Braintree. Reflecting on your new venture challenge experience, what stands out the most to you from that those early days of building pretty quick at the concept stage to where you are now in your professional life? Throughout the 10 years that I've been lucky enough to be affiliated with the new venture challenge, I just want to stress that it doesn't end with the new venture challenge. There's not a year that's gone by where I haven't reached out to one or dozens of my booth 
and NVC and Polsky community members for help, for help with a business problem, for help with strategy, for help with funding, for help with recruiting. And, you know, now I I hope to be able to reciprocate that through judging, through advising, through investing in the companies that are coming through the new venture challenge. It truly is a community that keeps on living and serving its members. It's not just about the competition and it's not about the first company that comes out. It's about creating founders and investors and facilitators of the startup ecosystem that can just help, you know, continue helping its community members thrive. Coco, when you think back to our first meeting before you were a booth student, when you were working with Nine Naturals, another new venture challenge company that came out of the program, helping them out, what would you have told today's Coco? Could you have imagined the path that you would have found yourself on? What advice should I have given you on that day? I honestly don't think I would have changed a thing, Star. You gave me advice that day to apply to Booth and um, and come and, and check out all that the New Venture Challenge had to offer. And my interest was so piqued in what Grace and her team had built and their boldness of vision and you know bravery around the entrepreneurial journey. I was just I was in hook, line, and sinker, and. That advice was the right advice. You know, it truly changed my life. Going through the new venture challenge gave me the confidence to pursue my entrepreneurial dreams. Even though I didn't have an entrepreneurial background, I had a very traditional CPG general management background before this, but it gave me the confidence that I needed to just relentlessly follow that dream and prove to myself that I could do it. Um, that I could motivate a team, that we could, you know, accomplish something that was bigger together than we any of us could apart. And, you know, it's working. So I honestly wouldn't have changed a thing. There have been really, really hard moments, moments when I didn't think I could make payroll, moments when I thought the business should shut down, moments when I was concerned about, you know, our long-term viability. It was um there have been dark days, but in those darkest days, I learned more about myself and more about strategy than than I, I could have learned in another MBA program. So um, I wouldn't have changed a thing. I'm so grateful for the entire journey and all that NVC has given me, uh, including this, this second company, as well as the investment opportunities that I now have to promote current participants. Thank you. So 10 years ago, this week would have been your first week of the spring quarter going through the new venture challenge, week one of the NBC class. That was 10 years ago. What are you excited about for 10 years from now? I just want to keep creating and keep building. And I am confident that Equilibria will continue to grow and ultimately likely sell. And 
then I'll have another opportunity to advise and invest and listen and learn. And I just want to keep helping the community. And then when the time is right, jump back in and um, keep on riding this train. It's so rewarding. It's so fun. So I hope 10 years from now, there's just another cycle of creating and giving back. My last question, is there anything that you think we can do at the University of Chicago or within the city of Chicago to support more entrepreneurs like yourself? Another boothy, Brian Larson has, you know, with some other awesome operators in town recently started Long Jump. And I I do think that just that the vision around writing the first check and around curating the deal pipeline to find those founders who might not have the network that I had or might not be positioned to share their story in exactly the pitch perfect way. It is essential that we as a community go out there and find some of those underserved and overlooked founders um, with racial diversity, gender diversity, sexual orientation diversity. I just think that we all have a responsibility to increase the diversity profile among the founders who are getting attention. Wonderful. So I said last question, but I lied. My last question for you is, are there any questions that you wish I would have asked? I don't think so, Star. I don't think so. It's so fun sitting down with you and just reflecting on how meaningful the new venture challenge was to me. And I know is to hundreds of would-be participants and participants and their teammates and their investors and just this whole ecosystem that you touch every single year. It's so impressive. Thank you so much for all your leadership here. It's really exciting to see all the fruits of your labor. I hope that you're so proud looking at what 10 years has done. Well, I'm so grateful to you for being a role model and you won't even realize it, but when I meet with teams of female founders now to give them support and advice, I think of how well you did pitching to that audience of mostly male investors and building a real business for a female consumer and continuing to do it again and again through your angel investing and through your focus. And so you've been truly a role model for our community. And for that, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much, Star. Thank you. All right, that is it for this episode. If you could do me a huge favor really quick, please go to your favorite podcasting app, often Apple Podcasts, and rate and review our show. This gets the show recommended to more folks, and it also helps us get bigger and better guests for you to listen to. Take care. Take care.